0: Pediatrics and poop just go together hand in hand, I think. Like you mentioned before, bloody diarrhea plus fever, more likely to be that bacterial etiology, right? You're talking about a 5% mortality in kids who present with fulminant HUS. I like super summaries. That sounds great. I can't wait for you to try to make sense of all the madness that I've said. This is the DownEast EM Podcast.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the DownEast EM Podcast. I I would say, I guess I have the pleasure, although we'll get into our relationship in a bit, but I have the pleasure of being joined by a Dr. Jay Larman, who I actually go back with a bit. Jay and I, uh, we went to college together. We can leave the name, I guess, out of the college. I'm sure you could find that out easily enough. Uh, we went went to college together, and then we attended the same medical school. And now we practice in very close proximity to one another. And um, yeah, we've we've had an interesting relationship. You and I, Jay, I've shot you with an airsoft gun. <laughs> I know I've definitely tagged you with an airsoft gun back in our in our college days. We've had some interesting uh, the development of our careers and lives together have been interesting to say the least. So. Uh, Jay, I, Dr. Larman, thank you for joining us and just kind of tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your practice.
0: Sure. Yeah, no, thanks for, thanks for having me, Jay, you know, uh, Dr. Hein, I should say. Um,
1: I never thought I'd hear
0: you say it was a pleasure to have me on anything. So I'm going to take that as a win. That's pretty yeah. good.
1: That's a, that's a professional courtesy, I think great I have to <laughs> I have to get
0: those professional courtesies a little more often from you so I'm a pediatrician who practices uh, locally uh, here in Portland uh, had done my uh, residency at Barbara Bush Children's Hospital, uh, Maine Medical Center and at this point I'm practicing locally in the community but I've definitely been loving the chance to start to build relationships with, with families here and really get ingrained in the community and get to know other physicians who are practicing here on, on a more collegial basis. It's been really really great.
1: Perfect. Perfect. And so yeah, um, Tufts Med School, Maine Medical Center, residency, and now here to talk poop. Today we're going to talk poop. And not just any poop, though. We're talking about poop coming out of kids. And so with that background and that training, I think you're probably the perfect person to talk pediatric diarrhea with. What an awesome topic. Jay, are you ready to talk? Kids I mean, poop.
0: if we're talking poop, then I'm, I was born ready. Pediatrics and poop just go together hand in hand, I think.
1: So most of this diarrhea we see in the healthy, immunized, you know, kind of the non-world traveling child doesn't really require a lot of thought or focus on the part of us. The, I'm going to be talking as the emergency medicine perspective here. You assess their hydration status. Maybe you give them a little antiemetics. Do that little bit ORT, that oral rehydration, which I love teaching parents about. Bada bing, bada boom. There's not a whole lot to that. There's kind of two things that the poopy kid makes you think about when, you know, two things come up in the assessment or history of a poopy child that's going to grab your attention. And those two things in my mind are fevers and blood. So Jay, I'm going to tell you what I think about this, my perspective, my thought processes. And then as a, you know, a pediatrically trained practitioner, I want you to tell me how terribly off base I am. How's that sound?
0: That sounds great. That's I'll do my best,
1: Jay. All right. So, if the kid has a fever in isolation, that's not a big deal in my mind. Certainly, it's you're again going to you know assess your pediatric triangle. You're going to check the kid out, check their capillary refill, all these things. But viral gastroenteritis, it's everywhere. You know, we're kind of coming into the winter months, and as long as the symptoms are manageable, you can get their fever down or improved with antipyretics. Again, it's not really a big deal. Tylenol and or ibuprofen to help that out. And again, I always want to make sure the parents know the fever doesn't have to resolve. The kid just needs to feel better, look better, able, be able to eat and drink and replace what losses they have and stay hydrated. Is that fair?
0: Yeah, I'd say that's totally right. The vast majority of the time of these kids, what you're going to be focusing on in the acute phase is rehydration. Um, Oral rehydration solution is fantastic. Things like Pedialyte that you can buy over the counter that's already prepared really help. and uh, They can go a long ways towards making kids uh, get what they need when they may not be able to keep up with their own uh, hydration needs and normal diet.
1: Perfect. And I'm glad you actually kind of bring that up as PD light. So one of the things that people ask about is, you know, is Gatorade okay? And my kind of just general knowledge, you know, medical background plus knowledge of what's out there and common supply, you know, we know that there's the sodium glucose water transport chain. That's how we're getting water into the body. And that's why ORT works. So as long as it has salt and it has sugar, it's going to help pull in the water. I've always thought, you know, Gatorade, yeah, it's probably okay. It's got a lot of sugar in it. So my general thought is cut that a little bit or the G2, kind of the Gatorades that are a little less um, sugar heavy might be be more beneficial. What do you say to parents when they ask about alternatives to Pedialyte?
0: Yeah, no, I think you're 100% right. Even watered-down juice will do a good job, right? Uh, It's whatever's really available at the time for the parents to be able to get their kids to drink. Uh, The key, as you said, is getting a little bit of glucose and some salt in there. So Pedialyte I often go to because it's easily available. People can run to the store, pick it up when they're frantic about their kid's diarrhea or vomiting, um, and it's something that they can easily get watered down and and feed. Gatorade, absolutely, same thing. Uh, Your point is is well taken in terms of being able to water it down a bit and cut it. Uh, Even the same can be true for for a little bit of apple juice if nothing else uh, if you cut that down that can help as as well in terms of getting uh some improvement in in in, in the ability to rehydrate these kids um, but okay. anything you can do to get to really take them mo- the most advantage of of your your solutions that you're able to get kids to drink is going to go a long way
1: and is apple juice going to have the salt they need i mean it's probably you know we're talking about our ratios here it probably has some but it it, it might be lacking that was kind of my question in terms of that common practice
0: yeah, it's definitely not ideal, right? There's there's far better solutions, but if there's a family at home they can't make it to the store, they've got apple juice in the mm-hmm. fridge then you know if you can get them to cut that down you don't want to be giving them full apple juice that might make the diarrhea even a little bit worse sure. um but uh if you can get them to cut it down add some more water then it's better than feeding straight water to to kiddos anything you can do to take advantage of whatever solution you're able to get these kids to drink is really going to make a huge difference so uh well apple juice is definitely not your ideal it's it's better than trying to feed them straight water
1: okay perfect all right so that was a great little aside coming back to that fever element you know, the diarrhea plus fever by itself, just to reiterate, hit that point home, doesn't really raise your eyebrow as a pediatrician. Is that fair to say?
0: Yeah, I think that's totally fair to say. Um, we can. We'll get into a little bit later some of the 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 way that I think about breaking down diarrhea fever together or alone. Uh, but that alone definitely does not make me uh, think that I need to lab a kid up necessarily, or uh, that make me feel as though they they need a consult or admission by any means.
1: Okay. Perfect. All right. So that's that first element, kind of that two-part thing that we were talking about, fever and then bloody stools. So when we get fever and bloody stools, that makes me start paying attention more. And the reason is that this is much more likely to be that bacterial cause of diarrhea rather than the, um, the viral, right? Um, the bacterial cause that could benefit from some oral antibiotics, And, you know, in this world, we're really dealing with some pretty familiar villains here. We start talking about shigella, shigatoxin-producing bacterium, C. diff, salmonella. Some old acquaintances sort of start to resurface like some unkillable Marvel supervillains that we know, (laughs) right? Um, So you think bacterial infection equals antibiotics, but it's really not that simple. And uh, explain for us why that is, Jay. Why is it? bacterial infection not equal antibiotics in these kids
0: be super nice if it did it would make a lot of our jobs quite a bit easier much easier um yeah if you could just kind of turf it and turf it with some antibiotics and follow up with your pcp that'd be nice that'd be nice as a pcp i'd love that Mm -hmm. um the hard part is that there's a lot of complications that can come from treating with antibiotics if you don't know exactly what you're treating the big one uh is is particularly if you're infected with one particular type of bacteria you mentioned Sugar-producing bacteria, and the, the one that we all probably remember from uh, Step 1 or boards is O157H7 E. coli, or STEX, sugar t- toxin-producing E. coli. Um, this bacteria, it can present with bloody diarrhea that's indistinguishable from other causes, but if you treat it with antibiotics, it can lead to something called hemolytic uremic syndrome, or HUS. Um, this is a triad of microangiopathic hemolytic anemia, thrombocytopenia, and acute kidney injury, which can really have a profound effect on kiddos. Anemia, you usually can detect that with a hemoglobin less than eight. The they define is usually less than 140,000 platelets. And the real problem is the acute kidney injury that can be variable ranging from hematuria and proteinuria uh, to true renal failure. Uh, and hypertension can be a real problem in these kids. So, HUS can occur, you know, with or without the introduction of antibiotics, but there have been some pretty good studies at this point that seem to indicate that patients who do have this STEC infection or the sugar toxin-producing E. coli Mm -hmm. who get antibiotic therapy, uh, they're a lot more likely to develop HUS, and they have a prolonged course and worsened clinical course. Observational studies have shown that an antibiotic uh, attributable risk is high as 25% for patients who are treated with antibiotics if they are infected with sugar toxin producing E. coli Uh, there's some types of bloody bacterial bowel movements that improve with antibiotic therapy but the potential harm from something like HUS is enough that empiric antibiotics should not be recommended for pediatric patients with bloody diarrhea
1: okay i want to i want to kind of dive into that a little bit so so it's oh one five seven h seven e coli we all learned about this in med school and it's in the back of our mind when we deal with these kids right fever bloody diarrhea, I would love to give you antibiotics because probably most of the time, I think it's fair to say, and you might you might have numbers in the back of your mind that I do not, most of the time it's not this bacterium and it's not this pathogen that's going to precipitate HUS, but I did not know this information. So antibiotic attributable risk is as high as 25% with these STEC infections. That's worth noting and sort of reiterating to our listeners. That's why we don't start antibiotics right away. Is that fair?
0: Yeah, that's totally fair. It's because the risk that's attributed to if this is a STEC infection, it's pretty high and pretty significant, and that's harm that you're going to be doing to the patient. On top of that, when you consider the benefit of what you get from treating antibiotics, the vast majority of these bloody diarrheas are going to clear up on their own. Um, So when you're talking about limited benefit from an extra Mm -hmm. day or two of of antibiotics while you're waiting on cultures to come back versus – the increased risk by treating with antibiotics the decision's pretty clear most of the time in terms of what you do
1: interesting so even in our in our bacterial cause of diarrhea we have immune systems and they've worked for a long time they worked before the advent of penicillin and most of these healthy kids even a bacterial infection they're going to get better on their own you know a fair number of them anyway they're certainly not going to hu- have a huge decompensation for the vast majority of these generally healthy kids while we wait for culture is the point you're making
0: yeah, exactly, exactly. Thank you. You're you're very eloquent in the way you say it, Dr. Hine. Oh,
1: thank but that's you. That's exactly no right. <laughs> <laughs>
0: you know, you, you can grab these cultures, and and most of the time, you can sit on these kids and wait until the result comes back before you need to jump on treating. Uh, and the potential harm that you can you can avoid by giving it an extra day or two can make a big difference. There's also obviously the cost of antibiotic treatment and and antibiotic resistance from overtreating with antibiotics that are not um, small things to consider when you're thinking about a population wide perspective. Uh, sure. Obviously, there's also the the lovely uh, antibiotic adverse reaction, uh, mm-hmm. which then ends up on a patient's chart forever as an allergy, which makes it harder to treat things down the road as well. So. You know, I think it's really important to just make sure you're using these medications when you need to. And a lot of times when we're talking about bloody diarrhea in kids, you don't necessarily need it. So making sure that it's an infection that warrants actual antibiotic therapy is definitely worthwhile as these kids generally do pretty
1: well without it. Okay, that's fantastic to hear from your perspective. And it helps me on that drive home feel a little bit better and, you know, sleep at night knowing that we can wait for those cultures as we've been trained to do. But it's always kind of a a strange circumstance for me we have this you know monster in the closet that we know about this precipitated hus in these kids and you know how real is that but you know up to 25% that's a good number to have in mind and there's a there's a real fear and generally these otherwise healthy kids again that we know have a normal pediatric triangle and are able to get some hydration orally are going to do well while these cultures cook
0: exactly you got yeah. it right
1: all right so you have a kid with fever and kind of bloody diarrhea you got them in your emergency department what do you do with them and for them? Uh, what would be your recommendation for me and for our listeners?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I think you've already started out with with talking about evaluating the kid, right? And that's always the first step. I think the, the concept of sick, not sick is something that is really easy to talk about, but it's an acquired skill that I think we all went through residency for. And it's something that's really underrated to be able to walk into a room and decide, like, is this a kid who needs treatment right now? Or is this somebody who I can work up and wait on? Uh, If you have a truly ill-appearing child in front of you that's peritonitic, severely dehydrated, or floridly septic, then all bets go out the window, right? You need to full full court press that kid, including antibiotics, IV rehydration, stat labs and imaging to rule out surgical emergencies like malrotation, even appendicitis. Hmm. Incarcerated intussusception is another one you need to be thinking about. Hmm. Uh, And starting out with the patient's age and general appearance, that can kind of help you narrow your differential a little bit and make sure that you're headed down the right path. So you know, obviously, when you're talking about neonates, causes of bloody diarrhea that can come with or without fever can be pretty varied. You can have the well-appearing child who's got maybe your milk protein intolerance. They might have an anal fissure and or swallowed maternal blood. Those kids all have soft stools, right? So everything kind of looks like diarrhea in the really young neonate. Right. Um, you hope that a lot of them don't have fever, or else they should be getting a wider workup. Uh, but if they really come in looking unwell, then you have to be thinking about malrotation in these kids' neck. If there's if there's certain uh, risk factors like prematurity, or any kind of coagulopathy, uh, which could be presenting with with bloody stool. Okay. Once you get out of that neonatal period, you, you still have to think about an allergic response, right? Milk protein intolerance can present up to a year, even up to age six in some kids, although that's pretty rare. Hmm. But it's something that you have to at least be thinking about in the well-appearing child. Infectious colitis goes way up your differential once you get a little bit older. Uh, but even just a gastritis is something you need to be thinking about for your painless bleed in an unwell appearing kid, you know Meckles is something to keep on your your differential, and Tussieception certainly is there for these waves of pain with that red currant jelly stool that we yeah. all learned about for our step one associations.
1: Um, on that currant jelly stool, sure. that's kind of the horses out of the barn is my understanding there, right? That's that's board based information, but that kid is not passing go, not collecting two hundred dollars because at that point they have. Incarceration, as you mentioned earlier in your kind of description, interseception with bloody diarrhea is a sick, sick kid. Is that fair to say?
0: Yeah, those kids are, are, are very, very sick. They come in. Oftentimes you'll hear the story about the waves of pain than the one that just doesn't go away. These mm-hmm. kids are crumpled up. They look like they're septic. They look terrible. So, yeah, they're, they're probably going to fall off your, your workup a little bit sooner. You're, you're not going to be spending a lot of time looking at that kid and trying to figure out what's happening. They're going to be getting stat imaging right away, and that's going to lead you to your answer most of the time.
1: Okay, perfect.
0: Yeah, and then, you know, vascular malformation, that's another cause of of the occasional GI bleed uh, hmm. in a kid that you need to be thinking about. It's pretty rare, a lot of times associated with genetic syndromes. But if you have an unwell kid who's really pouring out a lot of blood from the rectum, then that's something you need to make sure you're thinking about. Sure. As kids get a little bit older, there's other things to think about. Juvenile polyps start to enter the picture, which can confuse everything. But that's usually a really well-appearing kid, not always with fever, just rectal bleeding. You have to think about inflammatory bowel disease. And that's one that can really sometimes get tricky with your bloody uh, diarrhea and fever. If mm-hmm. it's somebody acutely present uh, presenting with inflammatory bowel disease, they might have that fever. They might look pretty poor. And they might have that bloody stool that can sometimes be confusing for uh, an infectious colitis the other thing that makes it really tough is that an infectious colitis can set off uh, your first presenting symptoms for inflammatory bowel disease or IBD, or you know they can they can uh, exist at the same time. So you can get these cultures positive, but still have a kid who, uh, once they eventually get to the point of getting scoped or, or getting a fecal calprotectin, one well will will prove to have IBD in the end, and they just were a little more susceptible to these infections because of the underlying inflammation. So that's yeah, always the tricky one.
1: That's basically a. When as you were saying that, I said okay. So I'm going to miss this diagnosis the first time, and someone will catch it later. Essentially, like that's a that's a <laughs> glass half empty way to look at that. But I think that's probably reality. If a kid has an you know a fever, bloody diarrhea, and um, possibly a concurrent enteritis, um, they culture positive. That's going to be diagnosed as a as a bacterial you know enteritis colitis. And it's going to be treated as such, and then later on when the antibiotics are, are through and the bacterium is gone and they still have the symptoms of IBD, that's when it's diagnosed.
0: Yeah, 100%. Sure. That's going to be making sure that that kid is better appearing and comes through their acute illness and checking on the level of inflammation, right? That's where a fecal calprotectin can be really helpful. If that's still elevated when the kid is well, then that's going to point you down the EBD, IBD pathway a little bit and, and help you to clarify that diagnosis, but usually not something that you're going to need to acutely rule out uh, if you've got the, the, the two concordant diagnoses at the same time. Sure. So, you know, when you're going through these things, looking at key points in the history can be really helpful. Timing of things can help you to differentiate things a bit. Diarrhea that's less than 10 days in duration, that's more likely to be your infectious etiology. Mm -hmm. Uh, Timing of the blood can also be helpful. So when you're thinking about infectious diarrhea, usually it starts out as non-bloody but becomes bloody pretty quickly after that first loose stool. If you have a patient who's presenting saying that their very first bowel movement in the uh, course of this diarrheal illness came out diffusely bloody, um, Mm -hmm. then that's less likely to be an infectious cause. Infectious diarrhea is also more likely to be associated with that crampy, colicky abdominal pain, particularly around the time of defecation. So being able to sort through that can really help you to to at least get down the right diagnostic pathway, make sure you're thinking about things the right way.
1: That's interesting. You know, I haven't asked that specific element before, and I'll, I'll probably start adding that. Not that it's going to, you know, it's certainly not something you hang your hat on, but we're just trying to pick pick up clues, right? We're Sherlock sure Holmes here and and that's helpful to know when when did the diarrhea set in? When did the blood set in in relation to the diarrhea?
0: Yeah, exactly. Like you said, it's not necessarily something that's going to totally change your clinical pathway, but it's something that can at least give you a hint that you're on the right right track, which can be really helpful sometimes when you're muddling through these diagnoses. Perfect. So... So once you've evaluated these kids and, and you've headed down your diagnostic pathway and you think you know what's going on, the next question is, are these kids safe to be treated at home or do they need to be admitted? Mm-hmm. Um, There's some cases where it's really easy, right? A kid who's less than three months old, who's not being able to keep up with their hydration orally, it's really hard to force fluids into those kids. So those ones, it's low threshold to to have them admitted overnight, watched at the very least, if not requiring IV hydration. Kids who have pre-existing conditions, things like prematurity or cardiac disease, they can be really fluid sensitive. So you want to make sure that they've got a set of eyes on them too. Those kids definitely, if they're presenting with bloody diarrhea especially, they need, they need to be watched. So I think those kids are pretty reasonable to to consult for admission. And then the rest of it really honestly comes down to a formal assessment of hydration status. You can use that to kind of help inform your decision-making on home versus inpatient treatment. I'm sure that you guys as ED physicians are probably even better at assessing hydration status than us pediatric trained folks. It's definitely something that you have to do all the time. But anybody who's moderately or severely uh, dehydrated probably needs some time in the hospital. If they don't respond to you know, an IV or NG2 bolus, then, then they probably need to be watched.
1: Yeah, no, I think uh, assessing hydration status is certainly something that we have developed a skill for because it's, you know, part of our repertoire. And while doing it in a, you know, two-month-old, three-month-old, five-month-old isn't super common. If you're an adult-trained or adult-based community medicine uh, emergency doctor, it's still something that we know how to do for sure.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, there's the nice thing is kids sometimes they they don't hide things too well. So Mm -hmm. you're looking for the kid who's crying without making tears, right? The kid who's got crappy capillary refill that you just can't seem to make better with the bolus the kid who's really fatigued and irritable they don't hide it very well when they're dehydrated they let you know which is always helpful perfect so once you've determined that they're dehydrated fluid resuscitation is best done through the gut if you can with these kids so that's where we're getting back to those oral rehydration solutions and making sure that you're getting these kids enough to keep up with their demand and their need if you uh, you know did any spent any time on the pediatric wards in your training you probably remember the 4 to 1 rule for hydration which is basically a good way to quickly calculate maintenance fluids Uh, When you're looking at the kilograms of a patient, four uh, four milliliters per kilogram for the first 10 kilograms, Mm -hmm. two milliliters per kilogram for the next 10, and then one milliliter per kilogram for every kilogram after that. And that can give you how much fluid a patient needs in an hour to keep up with their base needs. If you work that out over the course of a day, it ends up at about 100 CKD or CCs per kilogram per day, which is basically a a good baseline for where you need your hydration status to be. For kids who have... Diarrhea. I usually kind of cut that in half and add it on top just to make sure that we're giving them a little more uh, since they're definitely going to be losing some from the diarrhea as well. There's other also there's also other ways to kind of make sure that you're giving kids direction to to stay hydrated. One thing that I've heard with oral rehydration solution is one milliliter per kilogram every five minutes. The other is three m- mLs per kilogram for every 15 minutes for four hours. And that's enough to make sure that kids are kind of keeping up and, and getting what they need orally to to stay hydrated. So there's a lot of different ways to kind of skin that cat. But just making sure that parents are well-educated and comfortable to plan can really save you a lot of trouble down the road.
1: Okay, perfect. Perfect. So, yeah, in terms of that then, so we, we kind of figured out uh, our first assessment in terms of how sick is a kid, sick or not. And then are they, you know, well hydrated, mildly dehydrated, moderately dehydrated, severely so. And, you know, some of that we obviously would have figured out in our pediatric triangle and are sick or not. But say we have a kid that's mildly dehydrated or not even that dehydrated at all. And we have to kind of figure out from there, this kid's coming in with diarrhea, what's our etiology and kind of what's a general way that our our practitioners should be thinking about that from a pediatrics perspective?
0: Absolutely. So you know, the first thing is obviously ruling out surgical emergencies, kind of what we talked about before. Those are going to present with an acute abdomen and those are going to declare themselves pretty quickly. Then once I get to the point where I'm thinking this is more infectious in etiology and that I'm pretty comfortable that I'm in that realm at least, I help to kind of break it down into four different categories. So you've got your non-bloody diarrhea with a fever. That to me is pretty reassuring. I I love non-bloody diarrhea with a fever because it's probably viral. That's the kid that if he's not super dehydrated, you're able to take a look at him, give instructions for hydration and good return precautions, right? So if things change, when to come back. But for the most part, you're going to be able to send these kids home once they prove that they're able to tolerate some oral intake. The next category that I look at is non-bloody diarrhea with no fever. And still, that's probably viral. They probably just haven't mounted a fever yet, and it's probably more likely an acute gastroenteritis still a viral etiology. Fine to go home and follow up with their PCP if needed. A lot of times, this diary is pretty watery, and, and you can think about things like norovirus, which is a self-limited condition. Not going to say it's not miserable. It's something that I definitely don't wish on anybody, but definitely something that can be treated at home. It's, it's low risk, and historically, kids do quite well. Uh, Obviously, we're lucky to be in a part of the world where this is easy to treat at home. Historically and in underdeveloped areas of the country, norovirus and watery diarrhea is still a serious cause of of death. And and so, you know, we're we're lucky to be able to treat this like it's no big deal. But if this kid shows up in front of me in clinic, uh, then I feel pretty comfortable sending them home.
1: Okay, perfect.
0: Then you get into the sticky ones. Um, so bloody diarrhea with a fever, that actually to me still is slightly reassuring compared to some of the other things that it can be. Uh, you're you're kind of stuck on this one thinking it could be viral, but like you mentioned before, bloody diarrhea plus fever, more likely to be that bacterial etiology. Stool cultures really help you to rule out the, the scary things like we were talking about before uh, with your stack and can help you to, to s- determine if this is something that is going to eventually need some oral antibiotic therapy. So, the bit the bad actors your your Marvel supervillains that you get that mm-hmm. you're messing around with when you get into this category. Salmonella is is one that's incredibly common coming from eggs, poultry, right on pasteurized food. The 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 fun questions that every medical student will ask the patient with bloody diarrhea is, do you have any lizards at home, right, or any chickens living there? Because turtles, those are your, turtles, your, yep. <laughs> yeah, turtles, exactly, yep. exactly. Those are your those are your associations that you 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 learn early on in medical school. But it's usually a, an incubation period of a couple of days. You get some pretty Bad abdominal cramping and bloody mucousy stools, obviously miserable. You, you have fever, which which typically can last up to a week, um, and you've got stools that that will continue uh, for basically five to seven days at times. Asymptomatic car- uh, carriers can continue to to shed this bacteria in the feces for up to a month. So once somebody has this, it's really important from an epidemiologic standpoint to make sure that people are aware that they're gonna be infectious for a while. That's disgusting. Uh, especially if they don't end up with <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes it is. It's 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 pretty nasty. And when you're thinking about the areas where this tends to outbreak and especially kids who tend to be a little bit more prone to it, it can get passed around to daycare pretty quickly. Yeah. Campylobacter is another good one. And that's that that one is, you know, our association with Summer months, it's outdoor undercooked meat, which is always wonderful. Or puppies and kittens is the other area where this can mm. be picked up. But pu- puppy stool, kitten stool, that that can be an area where you can pick up Campylobacter. And if you're outside trying to cook on that fire with a with some nice a nice raw steak and, and you do a poor job, this is this is going to be your offending agent.
1: Gotcha. Um, the
0: reason Campylobacter really stands out for us is it has an association with. Guillaume barre syndrome. So it's something to to keep in mind, you know, these kids who present with bloody diarrhea that seems to get better and then present later with, you know, ascending paralysis, then uh, that's really something you need to be thinking about. Mm. Shigella, that's your your raw and washed vegetables. This is also the one that is most common for getting passed around daycare situations, mainly because of its impressive presentation. So younger kids who, who have bloody diarrhea associated with Shigella, they can come in with seizures or altered mental status, even Comatose, and it can be pretty scary. You can also get rectal prolapse. So you might have parents who are coming in with that as the their main concern, and and that can help pre- kind of point you in the direction of Shigella as your as your offending agent. But this is another one that can get just passed around from from fecal shedding, and so making sure that people are truly isolating when, once they they've been diagnosed with this until they're able to start on antibiotics with that positive culture can make a big difference. Sure. E. coli, that's that's our, our favorite, right? That's the one that uh, scares all of us because you're talking about introducing the possibility of HUS into this system. But you can also just have watery diarrhea from uh, EHEC, which is basically from ground beef in large factories, uh, unpasteurized food, daycare, and that can last up to a week. So the problem is these things can just last and last and last. And, and, and even though kids do quite well, they're able to keep up, parents can get quite concerned because it just doesn't seem to want to go away.
1: And EHEC and what well, we'll say is our STEC, they're both going to be bloody, right? I mean EHEC, H and HEc is hemolytic. So they're yep. both going to have bloody diarrhea, correct? We're going to have to differentiate the two by their you know, uh, toxin production and differentiate it on a culture.
0: You got it. Exactly. So culture can point you in the right direction. There are some rapid PCRs that can help to detect the sugar toxin as well. So, you know, depending on where you're practicing, you might be able to tap into that as a resource to help differentiate between the two. But yeah, culture is going to be your friend there for making sure that you're heading down the right path and not getting into an area you don't want to be.
1: Okay, perfect
0: the other one that's worth mentioning is is Yersinia. I mean, that's one where typically associated with pork and untreated water, but it can be somewhat tricky for kids who are immunocompromised. It can be a bigger deal for most people. It's it's self-limited and and relatively well-tolerated, but it can present with Right lower quadrant pain, and sometimes right lower quadrant pain, which initially kids might describe as having started out a little bit peri-umbilical.
1: so mm-hmm. it tends
0: to lead a lot of people to thinking about appendicitis. It can have this pseudoappendicitis syndrome, uh, and and once you know it, that's the kid who then you get the ultrasound and you can't visualize the appendix and. They end up going in, and and once surgery is done, these these kids have appendices that look totally normal. Um, their appendix looks looks uninflamed; it's normal in appearance, and then you're stuck kind of scratching your head, wondering what the cause of this was. Okay. Uh, so that's one that's definitely worth at least mentioning.
1: Hmm. All right, excellent.
0: The fourth category, which is this is the one that, that can be really scary at times is your bloody diarrhea with no fever, which I know seems a little odd, right? But the reason is that sometimes this is where you really have to be thinking about that HUS type syndrome. So when you're talking about having that STEC syndrome where you initially have fever and bloody diarrhea, usually it's on day four to five of symptoms where you're going to start to notice lab findings that would be concordant with HUS. So sometimes that acute infection has already started to wane and you're not going to have that fever anymore to point you in that right direction but the bloody diarrhea is still going to be there and a part of the reason you're going to have that bloody diarrhea is your thrombocytopenia making it harder for for some of that bleeding to to resolve so when a kid comes in having complained about you know close to a week of, of bloody diarrhea and they're afebrile that's actually pretty scary usually and, and a good reason to think about quickly getting your labs and making sure you're not heading in the HUS pathway cbc cmp urinalysis can all be helpful uh, to look for, you know, your anemia and schistocytes on your CBC, thrombocytopenia, and and an AKI. Uh, if you're noticing hematurian and then that can point you in the direction of of some end organ damage that you really would like to avoid. For kids who present in fulminant HUS, up to sixty percent of them can end up requiring some form of dialysis, which is pretty significant, and the mortality wow. is really high. Right, you're talking about a five percent mortality in kids who present with fulminant HUS. So if you're getting this, this bloody diarrhea with no fever, that that can be a scary kid who's, who's definitely going to warrant some some increased observation and, and trending of labs, most likely at the very least. Uh, they can get sick really
1: fast. Well, that's interesting. I think uh, there's a couple of things in, on package there. The HUS, you said the symptomatology and the the laboratory abnormalities are going to typically develop around day five of illness. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, day four to five is where it seems to, from most of the studies that they've been able to do on these kids, they're obviously mostly observational or retroactive studies. And they they find day four to five is where the lab abnormalities in the HUS seems to present. exactly. Okay.
1: And to reiterate what that would include, that's microangiopathic hemolytic anemia, thrombocytopenia, and an AKI. You got it. Okay, perfect. And so um, is there kind of an age group that we need to think about this more or so in, or is it just kids, peds? Is it all children? How, where are you starting to see kind of the delineation in terms of who's getting HUS?
0: So it, it's usually younger kids. There's a, a broad range. You know, if you look it up, you're going to see everyone from about a year old up to early teens. Mm-hmm. Uh, but most of the kids that you're going to see who are who should be kind of raising that red flag and saying, I need to be thinking about this, are that kind of four to seven-year range. Um, the vast majority of cases take take place in kids who are under seven years old, uh, and four is the median age for cases that have been that have been uh, recorded. Over the last few years in the U.S., uh, that's well, those numbers are from 2016 in terms of the statistics that they have there. But that tends to be true. I mean, it's usually the younger kid. It's the kid who went to the petting zoo, right, and had that exposure, uh, then had some bloody diarrhea, seemed to be doing just fine, and then all of a sudden crumped. Um, mm. it's, it doesn't tend to be the, the teenager. You know, if you've got the 14-, 15-year-old kid who's presenting with bloody diarrhea and some lab abnormalities, I'd be way more inclined to think about IBD than I would HUS, unless they've got a good reason to point me in that direction.
1: Okay, so to summarize that, we're going to say that the the average age, and certainly there's a range there, our average age of a patient that's going to present with HUS is going to be uh, you know, four years old or so. They're going to present with the abnormalities of HUS um, around day four or five of illness. And man, to reiterate some of those numbers, up to 60% are going to need dialysis, 5% mortality. Impressive numbers in terms of when this kid comes to your door, recognizing and and you know, moving quickly and realizing that you have a very sick kid with a very high mortality.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Okay. Um, and then, so that was, that's the main one. That's kind of the the topic, the, the, the poster child for this discussion today. But to close out that bloody diarrhea, no fever, what other things outside of HUS do we need to consider?
0: Yeah. So that's where you might see your malrotation, right? Because of a- ischemic bowel. You might see your IBD that's presenting and IBD really can present in any kids of any age, which is what makes it so hard. And intussusception is the other one. But like you said, you know, a kid with intussusception who's having bloody stools, that kid's going to be sick as stink. A kid with malora who's got ischemic bowel, that kid's going to be really sick. So Mm -hmm. those ones are usually pretty easy to pull out. You know, you're not thinking it's very unlikely that you're going to be sitting there thinking, is this an infectious etiology or is this something else? Uh, your answer is going to be pretty clear for those. IBD is the one that can sometimes really uh, cause you to to make sure that you're you're thinking this through and 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 hitting your history points and and making sure that you're following up with that.
1: Okay, perfect, Doctor Larman, That's a fantastic review of that topic and and a detailed look into some of the things that we don't always think about. I'd say as certainly as adult practicing or primarily seeing adult uh, emergency medicine providers, which I'm sure many of us are, even if you have a PEM base, it's important to review these things and recognize why we're, we do the things that we do why we send cultures and don't treat, which is kind of the status quo. But the thought processes as to why and what we're thinking about, what we're looking for, it's important. It's important to recognize the why behind our actions at all times. So if you can... Can you give us some kind of closing points or perspectives from your side? And I'll try to do a super summary at the end.
0: I like super summaries. That sounds great. I can't wait for you to try to make sense of all the madness that I've said. (laughs) Um, Yeah, you know, I'd say that from a closing point, the perspective of – uh, pediatricians that most of these kids are going to do really well. And if you're doing your due diligence, you figure out that this is an infectious colitis, you get your stool cultures cooking, uh, then you've done everything you need to make sure that these kids have what they need for that initial assessment. And then being able to ensure good follow-up, you know, connecting with their PCP or whatever systems your hospital system might have in place to follow up those stool cultures with your patients, then that that's the next step. You know, one of the important points to think about with that HUS-type kid is that those symptoms present a little bit later on in the disease course. So if you're catching these kids early on, you can sit on those stool cultures and let them cook and feel pretty sure that you're going to catch that, that STEC infection before it really presents with HUS for a lot of these kids. So absolutely, I think, you know, my major point is you don't need to treat these kids with antibiotics if they're well-appearing. Do your due diligence, get your cultures, and then follow them up and treat as necessary.
1: Okay, perfect, perfect. All right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna hit kind of the the ten thousand foot view. We are talking about poop and fevers and blood, and that's kind of what we went into today. And we're gonna come to that very kind of targeted topic of uh, poop plus blood plus fevers and why we don't give antibiotics, why we do what we do, and what our worry is with HUS and sec. But starting from the ten thousand foot view on these, we're gonna break down pediatric diarrhea into kind of four buckets. The non-bloody diarrhea with a fever, generally viral. Most of these kids are probably not going to look that sick. We're going to be assessing their fluid hydration. We're going to do, with all of these, it goes without saying, I'm not going to reiterate it each time, pediatric assessment triangle, making sure that they're um, no, not, you know, are doing our sick versus not sick, checking their hydration status, and then in most of these kids, we're gonna see that ORT is probably the way to go, oral rehydration and antipyretics as needed. In our second bucket, the non-bloody diarrhea, no fever, uh, you know, probably still gonna be infectious in nature. If you're gonna put your money down, you're probably gonna say viral as well. And again, most of these kids, we thinking as an ER doc, sick versus not sick, most of them are gonna fall in the non-sick category. And we can treat them symptomatically. and Make sure that they follow up well with their uh, with their pediatricians. There are certain things outside of infection that need, we need to consider, and we're going to do a good history in terms of you know what they're taking in, what their family history is, what you know the risk of inflammatory diseases are, things like that. But for the vast majority of them, it's going to be making sure they can stay hydrated and get them home. Bucket three, I'm actually going to move to the end. Bucket four was bloody diarrhea, no fever, and this one actually has a has a fair number of bad players in it. And we're going to put HUS in that category because at the point of presentation, you may not have a fever if it's, if it's uh, colitis, enteritis, precipitated. But in the bloody diarrhea, no fever, we got to think about, you know, air, inflammatory bowel disease in our maybe older kids, certainly HUS, which we've talked a fair bit about here. In our younger kids, we got to think about malrotation. We got intussusception on that list as well. And when we're talking about pure HUS, there are some important take-homes there. Average age of the kid is going to be around four. Certainly, you can see them older or younger, but that's the average age. After a bacterial enteritis as a precipitant, they're going to get these symptoms and they're going to have the laboratory abnormalities of hemolytic anemia, thrombocytopenia, and an acute kidney injury around day four or five. 60% of the kids, up to 60% can need dialysis. 5% mortality. Basically, be afraid of this disease and recognize it on your differential for the kid with bloody diarrhea and no fever. Coming back to that third bucket of bloody diarrhea with fever, that's kind of the one that we were getting into the nuances of here a little bit. And basically, the, the question we had and the thing that we wanted to really understand thoroughly is bloody diarrhea and a fever, pretty decent risk of this being a bacterial enteritis colitis. And in that realm, bacteria oftentimes for giving antibiotics. Why are we not for these kids? So there's a few different players that can come in here. We're gonna we talked about the Salmonella, the Shigella, Campylobacter, Yersinia, but the one that we need to kind of take a pause and think about is our E. coli. We know there's EHEC out there, and that's you know the uh, uh, hamburger meat. But then we have this O157H7, or as we called it, STEC. And this one has the potential to precipitate HUS in the kids that getting are getting antibiotics. And we talked about numbers about 20, 25% in these kids. We don't want to precipitate HUS for all the reasons I just mentioned. So we're pulling cultures, stool cultures in these kids who are generally, as we talked about with Dr. Larman, generally we're, you know, we're talking about healthy kids here. They can handle another day, two days of diarrhea while our cultures result because we don't wanna precipitate that HUS. Certainly if they're sick enough, we're gonna be emitting them, we're gonna be obsing them, we're gonna do what we need to do in that regard, but we don't wanna increase the risk for HUS, we don't wanna increase you know, bacterial resistances or the complication of diarrhea that antibiotics may have when we may not be dealing with the right infection here or we'd certainly don't wanna lead down that road toward HUS. So that's why we do that. That's the logic behind pull cultures, verify oral rehydration ability, verify strong follow-up, outline return precautions, but don't start antibiotics. Jay, how'd I do?
0: That was pretty impressive. I'm not going to lie. I feel like you uh, you had that all written out. That's pretty good. I think you learned Thanks, something man. here.
1: I try. I try to pay... You know, I honestly, most of the time when you talk, I try not to pay attention or listen. But when I specifically ask you to come on a podcast and talk with me about your area, your specialty-specific knowledge, I feel like I got to listen. So... Thank you. Oh, man.
0: I just, you know, I got I to gotta soak up these moments when I can. I got to soak up these moments.
1: Awesome. Well, guys, I hope you soaked up a lot from this podcast because I feel like I learned a lot as well. It was great talking with you, Dr. Larman, and I hope to have you on the podcast again. Thanks so much for joining us.
0: Absolutely. Thanks, Dr. Hein. Appreciate it.
1: That's all for the Down ECM podcast for now. If you like what you hear, please hop over to iTunes, throw us some stars, give us a review. It really, really helps us. Also, we would love to hear your ideas about how we can make the podcast better, any topics you like to cover, anything that you think would help your listening experience. You can check out more of what we have to offer at our blog, DownEastEM.org, and you can follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at DownEastEM. Until next time.